Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is TV Take from Variety. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with executive producer Alex Kurtzman about Star Trek Discovery, which debuts its second season January 17th on CBS All Access. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Kramke will discuss HBO's True Detective and Netflix's Sex Education. Also, we'll talk with Variety's Joe Otterson about the forthcoming prequel to massive hit Game of Thrones. Stay tuned. So we're here with Alex Kurtzman, executive producer of Star Trek Discovery. Alex, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So at the end of season one of Discovery, this goes on its way to Vulcan. They get a hail, they pull over, and then the USS Enterprise pulls up. So at what point when you were making season one did you first think, okay, we're going to pull out the big gun at the end? We knew pretty early on that we wanted to get there. Um, we 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 knew that the arc of the season was really going to be about Burnham facing the consequences of the choice that she makes in the pilot, and you know having a, an opportunity to to meet her mother figure again in in a different form and go through that whole experience and the consequences of the war. And we knew that once we resolved the war issue, we wanted to leave the audience on a sort of a suspended note of what's to come. And so we knew, you know, the enterprise is probably the biggest. Plus there were lots of questions about why Spock has never mentioned his half sister, Michael Burnham. So we did owe that debt and we knew that was coming. So discovery is, um, it's basically a a precursor to the original Star Trek series. Sonequa Martin Green plays Michael Burnham and she is a Starfleet officer who was, raised by Spock's family after being orphaned, right? right? Yes. Um, in season two, it, as you just said, that's going to, that element of her character is going to be a, a, a very strong through line, right? Yes, yes. Um, did you have, and we're going to see Spock, as as, as has been previously announced, um, so did you have misgivings at all about bringing in the sort of... Um, the main hero characters of the mm-hmm. original series mm-hmm. uh, and, and recasting those characters who, you know, we identify with particular actors. Sure. Uh, I mean, always. I think, you know, maybe I was a little bolder because we did it in the films. So I felt like I had touched that area before and was so uh, proud of the amazing work that the actors did and felt like, OK, you know, I saw it happen once. Maybe we can do it twice. Um, it, it's always dangerous because the TOS characters are so beloved. And everyone has such a strong opinion and such strong feelings about each character. And if the either the recasting or the characterization itself doesn't meet up with people's imagination, then we get in big trouble. Um, knowing that, however, I, I guess maybe I'm really dumb and like to dive right into the fire, but I I really enjoyed the experience of it because I have my own connections to them too. And felt like what was really exciting was the opportunity to explore 
a gray area about this relationship and this character or these characters, both being Spock and, um, and, uh, Pike and number one, uh, you know, number one's a great example. You know, very little about number one, right? She, she was in one episode and then kind of out and, you know, she's a blank slate and yet she's always been remembered by Trek fans. Why? And getting to look at that. And, Pike was obviously a character who had a large mythological presence on the show, both because of the pilot that never aired and then what did come later um, in Menagerie and, and in the cage. And then in what we did with Bruce Greenwood, we got to open more doors in his character. But that obviously is the Kelvin universe. So it's a different version of Pike. So um, I loved the idea of saying, OK, who are these people really? And we have 14 episodes, 14 now, to explore nuances and details and and parts of their lives that either may have been alluded to or left blank that we can now fill in with pike and with spock um you have sort of opposing problems right like with pike you've got this guy who it's a character people love but we know very little about so right. there's a lot of space that you can kind of move right. in with spock it's like sure. don't knock over the furniture right? right right so how do you um I don't know how you balance those two sort of different approaches to reimagining these characters. Well, you know, maybe part of it is that having written a version of Spock for Zach Quinto and then having had the opportunity to work with Leonard on a different version of what Spock becomes uh, in the prime universe and having had so many conversations with him about who he imagined his character to be allowed us the freedom to say, let's, let's fill in a blank for why this character would never have mentioned his sister. There has to be a really, really compelling reason that we went through TOS, the movies, uh, you know, both in the prime and in the Kelvin universe. And he never said a word about her and the challenge of that alone, figuring out, how to make that work emotionally and how to make that work at a plot level was so juicy that, <laughs> that I think we just felt we had to go for it. And look, I'm a huge sucker for a sibling story. I just am. It's one of my favorite kinds of stories because I think it's so rarely told and it's such a unique and specific relationship and you don't necessarily have to be a blood sibling to connect and have such and have a, a very distinct and unique connection. And so the idea that Spock and Burnham are playing out this dynamic of logic versus emotion and knew each other before Spock became the character we meet in TOS um, was so exciting to me because I think what got me riled up about it is the idea that if we can take season two of Discovery and understand how his relationship with Michael informed how he became the Spock we meet in TOS. That without that relationship, he would never have been prepared for Kirk. Uh, that's a new and interesting spin and something really worth talking about because people haven't seen that before. It's interesting to say how, that he would never have been prepared for Kirk um, because Michael's a very different character mm -hmm. from Kirk. Mm -hmm. So I assume that that preparation is about the journey that they're going to go on together rather than like, Things, the, the interpersonal dynamic. By the time like Spock that. and Kirk are together, which we see them being, you know, when you're airdropped into what became the first episode of TOS, mm -hmm. Spock, you know, Spock certainly works out logic versus emotion over the course of the series, several series and movies, but he is more or less 
settled into his Vulcan character. Um, and that was an interesting opportunity was, well, maybe he wasn't always settled into that Vulcan character. Maybe it, maybe he had to go through a whole journey of logic versus emotion to figure out that what was necessary ultimately was balance. And that while Spock always represented the logic of the enterprise, Kirk was the emotion of the enterprise. And without his working through that self-exploration, self-discovery, you know, were pun intended, uh, he, he would never have become that character. And so that felt like a really unique and interesting opportunity and a necessary one. Did you worry that bringing these really well-known, I mean, in the case of Spock, uh, iconic mm -hmm. characters, I mean, President Obama talked about Spock yeah, sure. when Leonard, ne Leonard Nimoy died, um, uh, would overshadow the new, the new characters that you created for the show? Of course, it's always a danger, of course. And part of it, it's twofold. You know, you, we, we did an extremely deep dive on casting and sp spoke with the Nimoy family and had them bless the casting. And um, Ethan, when Ethan came in, and when I say he was probably over the 400th actor we had seen, I, I mean that literally. Um, what I saw in him were two things. First of all, he conveyed to me with very, I don't know if it was in his body language or if in just the way he held himself in the read, that he too was struggling through something similar to what Spock was struggling with. And I could sort of see it between the lines of what he was actually saying in the, in the dialogue that he was reading. And he didn't know he was reading for Spock, which was the other thing that was fascinating. We did sides where it was a different character and he, he, none of the actors knew they were reading for Spock. And I think that that coupled with the fact that he was so clearly ready to dive wholeheartedly into this once he understood what was actually happening and who he was playing, he was he you know he was so beautifully committed to saying I'm going to go as deep as I can go here I'm gonna I'm gonna go as deep into this character as possible and I'm terrified I'm terrified I'm humbled and terrified I'm 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 living in Leonard's shadow I'm living in Zach's shadow and what I always felt was that his fear was great and I said if you if you weren't scared right now something would be wrong you it would be bad <laughs> you are it's a huge responsibility that we both have but we're going to hold hands and we're going to go through it together because i have to write your words for you and you have to perform it and you know if people are going to fire they're going to shoot us both between the eyes so we're in it together and um i think it, it certainly gave me the confidence to feel in what i saw in his read that he was just an excellent human being um and i i you know it's funny i Without fail, my experience in casting has been that the right person walks in the door at the 11th hour. It's amazing, actually, how frequently that happens. And this was no exception. What was, um, I mean, what were the conversations with Nimoy's family like? And um, I think they were very moved that we were carrying on the legacy in a way that felt uh, relevant and fresh that um, the fact that they were consulted, the fact that we weren't just going off and doing it without saying that, you know, we all owe a debt to Leonard. I, I certainly having known him, you know, and, and really loved him would not ever have felt okay about that. Uh, it's just not, it wouldn't have been okay without their blessing. And Adam Leonard's son, who did a beautiful documentary about Leonard, uh, you know, was, was very, um, 
supportive. And I, I think that also gave us the confidence to feel like, okay, we can do it, but we have even more responsibility now to live up to what Leonard left behind. Uh, you guys went through a showrunner change uh, yeah. about midstream on season two, which you're in the process of wrapping up now. Yeah, um, There were some allegations of misconduct. Uh, to the extent that you can talk about it, what can you say about what happened and then what happened after where you're now in a position where you're running the show really full time? Um, I think that my job was always to stay at 30,000 feet at a story level and to be the person who would always have receptors out to what felt right or what felt wrong. Um, And without getting to a lot of specifics about what happened in the room, I think that there were issues between the writers and uh, I I really felt strongly that I did not want to go out and look for somebody else. That I'd come to a place where I had fallen deeply in love with the show And it was incredibly important to me and remains incredibly important to me for the staff to be happy because what we have to do is monumental and you can do hard work, but it's really hard to do hard work when people are unhappy. So I, I, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on being the showrunner this year, but I felt I felt a responsibility to the writers. I felt a responsibility to the cast. I felt a responsibility to the show. Um, I had directed the premiere episode and I think also felt a deep responsibility to the crew who have, we have asked a lot of the crew. Um, you know, I, I hold the show to a, a movie standard and that means that they are never doing things like traditional coverage and they're never doing things like, uh, you know, there's nothing easy about the show. So, people's happiness and their feeling of safety is tremendously important to me, just as important as the work. So I I don't know, I guess I just felt it was my responsibility to take, to take and that I needed to own it. This happened around the same time that you were taking on a larger role with Star Trek. I mean, you have a, at this point, a long history with the franchise, but it, it has now gotten, um, to the point that you are in many ways, the guy in charge of yeah. star Trek at a time when it is becoming much bigger than it's been at least yeah. since the mid nineties. Yeah. Um, what, what made you, in addition to taking on this very hands-on role with discovery, what made you want to essentially become star Trek guy? It's a really great question. So I, when I was doing the films, I, I loved the world of Trek, but I will admit that when I grew up, I was frankly more of a Star Wars guy. I loved Trek. I loved the Wrath of Khan. I loved TOS, but it, it, it wasn't the same experience for me as a kid. And I, I loved making the films and I loved the cast. And those were great adventure movies. And I was particularly proud of the relationship story we got to tell in the first movie. And from that, from that sense, it was personal. Um, and I think that Bob and I, my, my former partner, were writing about each other in that first movie. And so for, for me, that's what that movie was about. And then I went off and I, I had other experiences and I made a movie and it was not a particularly satisfying experience for me. And I came out of it feeling a deep need to find something that I really connected to emotionally that was meaningful to me. And 
we had just finished the pilot and I came in on the pilot and I did a lot of work in the editing room and I felt in some ways like I needed a break that I needed to just, and when I say break, I mean, my break was going to work on Star Trek. (laughs) It was okay. I just went through this kind of major experience and it was very life changing. And I, Star Trek was there and I think Star Trek needed me and I needed it. And I went into the process and I said, I'm not going to do any writing. I'm not going to do any directing. I'm just going to focus on post. I'm going to sit in a dark room for a little while and, you know, focus on the editing, focus on the visual effects, focus on the music, the mix, everything. And I had a, a really wonderful and very healing experience because I found myself connecting to it more and more at a time when I saw the world changing. And for the first time, despite the experiences that I had on the films, I began to feel that Star Trek was more necessary than ever. And that whereas Star Wars is about a galaxy far, far away, Star Trek is about the best of what we can become. And right now, we need to know that. Right now, more than ever, we need to know that it's possible for us to, as the Vulcans say, live in a world of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And that our best selves will emerge and that there is hope uh, for a crew like discovery and a future like the people on that ship to a future that can hold the people on that ship uh, to exist. And suddenly it became a mission where I was like, I don't want to do anything that isn't meaningful anymore. I don't want to do anything that isn't about putting a message into the world that's necessary and positive. And the more, and I fell in love with Trek in a totally different way because I had already loved it, but it suddenly became the only thing I wanted to do and the only story I wanted to tell. And I think I've just come to a place in my life now where if it doesn't have (laughs) nutritional value, right? (laughs) Meaning if it doesn't have something important to say, something meaningful about the state of the world and who we are as people, I don't care. I'm not going to spend my time on that anymore. And so I think that I just found it at this moment when I needed it. And the more I started looking at it, the more I realized, wait a minute, there are so many stories to tell, not just the discovery story, but, you know, I mean, many, many, many stories. And the more you talk to people about it, uh, the more they will tell you, oh, here's the story I want to see. And suddenly the idea of growing a larger Star Trek universe in the world of television was very exciting to me particularly because the line between film and television is utterly blurred at this point. And since we're holding discovery to a film standard in terms of scope and scale and visual effects and how we shoot it, uh, for me, I I get to play with all the toys that I learned how to play with in the film world. Um, But I get to do it here on television in a way that I and the people I collaborate with can curate the message of the show, make sure that every, every show we tell has something to say, and it's also wildly entertaining. So I don't know, I I guess it just became more personal for me in a different way over the last two years. So you're taking what you've done on Discovery Now and scaling it out. Um, I I love Star Trek. Even I have trouble remembering how many things you guys have in development at this time. Oh, in the Trek world? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it is a lot, right? Uh, It is, but I think what we're planning on is not... I I, want to make sure that each show is a different and unique proposition. I think that Deep Space Nine and Voyager got into a tricky spot where people were starting to feel like, well, I can't tell the difference between the shows, even though they were very different. I can't tell the difference. And so why would I pick one over the other? And 
our job is to make sure that every time you get a Star Trek show, it feels like a very different prospect from any other Trek show that exists. So that in the same way that in the world of Marvel or in the world of Pixar, you're, you're, you have multiple stories coexisting and yet each one feels different while there is kind of an assumption and an understanding of what the brand identity of that thing is, right? So every time you go to a Marvel movie, you kind of know what you're going to get, but one could be Ragnarok and one could be Black Panther and one could be Iron Man. And all of those have a very, very different feel, but the premium I think is always on the storytelling. And that is certainly the case in Pixar. Um, you know, I've studied them a lot and for me, there is no higher, they're the gold standard. They're, they're the best. And even though all their films are different, the one thing you can always expect when you go to a Pixar movie is that the story is going to be great. And so I want to, I want us all to elevate Trek to that place where when you go to see, when you go to watch a show, the expectation is we're going to we're going to have great storytelling. The kinds of stories are going to be different and the way they're told are going to be different. But I want, I really want people to, I want to come, I want to build Trek to a place where people assume that about it. With one of the things that you guys are doing is um, Patrick Stewart is returning to Star Trek yeah. uh, to play Captain Picard in a new series. That yeah. You guys are working with Michael Shaben. Yeah. Uh, which thanks for that. Um, oh my God. <laughs> it, the, the, believe me, the honor is entirely mine. <laughs> he wrote my favorite book of all time. So when I found out he was a fan, I, I, you know, I sat down with him very sort of nervously and tentatively, uh, hopeful that maybe we could entice him. And I said, how would you like to work on Star Trek? And I think I got that part. He went, yes. And it turned out that he has been, you know, his whole life has been informed by Star Trek. And uh, he's also the most wonderful human. And you can see that reflected in his beautiful, beautiful writing. And so getting to work uh, on the show that we both love um, and, you know, getting to work with my hero is also really wonderful. What... Um... What were the conversations like with Patrick Stewart and how did you guys convince him to come back to the character? Well, it's a great question. Uh, so I had heard that Patrick was so, I think, protective of Picard and um, had wasn't just didn't think he could play the part again and didn't want to play the part again. And, you know, when we started building this Trek universe, uh, obviously the first thing you think of is, man, if John Luke Picard could come back, that would be unbelievable. I'd love to, to know what happened to him after next gen. And he's, you know, one of the most, if not the most beloved captain of all time, there's always the Kirk Picard debate. And I called his agent and I said, look, I don't know if he'd ever be interested in this, but maybe he could sit down with us. And maybe I was really, you know, foolish. Uh, but I, I had had a similar experience with, with Leonard um, and, and getting, Leonard to play Spock again after he had written something literally entitled, I am not Spock. He, he said he would never do it. And so I, I think maybe that emboldened all of us enough. Uh, you know, once, once we did get him, which is its own amazing story and certainly one I will never uh, forget. Um, but once we got him to say yes, I think I thought, well, if we could, if we got Leonard to come back, then maybe we can get Patrick. And, um, and we sat down with Patrick who was lovely, but also clearly very unsure. And, you know, uh, it's not just that he played a character that he loved. It's that he played a character that the world loved. And so he needed to make sure that the people who he was talking to were not going to just uh, 
that we're that we that we were going to treat the character and the world with respect. But most importantly, and this was such a great challenge, he said, "I want this to be entirely different. I don't want to negate what I played with Jean Luc, and I don't want people to feel somehow like we're negating it. But why go back to the same thing?" And we thought that's totally right. That's in, that's totally right. That that's suddenly a reason to tell the story. So we spent a lot of time thinking about how to do it, and um, and he was. We we wrote up what was supposed to be a three page document that turned into a thirty page document, and we sent it to him, and it was the weekend of the Oscars last year, and. Uh, he read the document and we heard he wanted to have another meeting and we, we had no idea what we were walking into and we met and he had this huge smile on his face when he walked in and he said, this is wonderful. And, um, he, I don't, we're not going to do any of this, but it's great. And, <laughs> and, uh, from there we, we, we sort of realized that it, what we had done was we had shown him in, in the writing that we at least wanted to try for something that was different and that he was, coming to the table with people who not only loved him, but loved the character. And from there, we started building it very much together. We started, then then became the process of sitting down and saying, all right, what what do we want to do? How, how is this different? Um, how are we honoring Picard? How are we honoring the fans? How are we honoring the next generation? And, um, and this kind of amazing thing has emerged. And, you know, it will feel really different than Discovery. Uh, but that's, to me, a great thing, a necessary thing. How do you, there's been this sort of reboot mania in television, mm. right? And so how do you then do that thing that that Patrick was talking to you about, which is to make it different, but also feel like it is authentically this character, when you know that there are fans out there who will be completely unsatisfied until they see Data sure. or Worf, right. and yet if you do that too quickly or in the wrong way, mm-hmm. it, will, it will feel unsatisfying of once course. it happens. Of course. Look, that's a constant and daily conversation, you know, um, and, and you, you pointed the exact right thing out. You know, people ha- will, well, they will come into that show with expectations and you'll either, you'll, and you'll, we'll meet some of them and we'll fail in other ways because there's no way for everybody to love everything. And I think that's one of the things that I have learned in my time working on Trek is that part of the beauty of Star Trek is that people de- debate it and have different points of view about it. They, there is no, it's very rarely does every Trekkie or Trekker agree on everything. And that's sort of the point. It allows, it asks its fans to engage in a debate and in a conversation. And because something is so meaningful to people and has endured for over 50 years, we couldn't possibly please everybody. Um, and that's okay. But where you really fall short and where people get really get angry is if they feel that you're somehow disrespecting the franchise or throwing a kind of darkness into a character that they did not feel that way about. You know, if you're, if you're mutating the character into something that isn't, that doesn't feel authentically like what they loved, that's, that's hard. And so I think we're always debating where that line is. How long ago did you first start, working on discovery brian fuller and i started working on it uh i want to say three years ago so in that time i mean given that you had you were you'd already worked on the films at that point and you had already sort of entered this universe but you're in a different place in it now yeah completely what have you learned about star trek that you either that that didn't know or that you or that surprised you in the last three years
I think Star Trek is constantly teaching me lessons about how to write um, and how to look at the world. And I think that one of the things that's interesting is how much room reinvention is the wrong word. It's not reinvention, but there are different ways to tell stories. And I think that one of the things that's really beautiful about Star Trek is that there are, there are interesting offshoots uh, and there are interesting areas in the world of Star Trek uh, and, and points of view in the world of Star Trek that allow for tremendous variety to the kinds of stories that you can tell. And I think it's because Trek has, has such a long, has really built on this history and tradition of honoring every character. And so being able to shift points of view radically, even when the show's about one main character, to be able to jump into another character's point of view is really, you know, A, it's the beauty of television because you have more time. But it's one of the things I think that is most satisfying to audiences is they feel they get a very full meal. Um, so I, I think it it's constantly challenging me to find different ways to tell stories. To Not only that, but also to come up with structural paradigms that are different um it doesn't it shouldn't always feel the same in how you find the information out you know it's funny on alias we used to uh it, it you would always airdrop the audience into the middle of the story into the the most heightened moment and then you it would kind of reach a crescendo and we'd hold on a suspended note and we'd cut to black and then we'd jump 24 hours earlier and then the episode became all about how do we get there you know and that's a really interesting and fun structure and so the idea of being able to 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 play with Trek in that way too, where it isn't just, okay, here's a problem. We're going to go out and solve it. But how do you mix and match the way you come into a story is great. And I haven't yet to find a limitation on that with Trek that I don't think there's a, you can't do it this way rule about Trek. Um, and I guess the other thing is what I've already said, which is that it became much more personal to me. It became a mission in a different way. You know, it was a, it was a wonderful job that I was lucky to get with a lot of other people who were, so talented and frankly knew more than I did much more. But now, <laughs> now it's different. Now I feel finally like I can authentically call myself, I don't know, Trekkie, Trekker. I guess you have to pick your definition of that. But I think that now because I've so fallen in love with the world and kind of claimed my place in it in a different way, uh, I think it's opened up to me in a way that is just different than it used to be for me. Alex, thanks for doing this. Thanks very much. True Detective Season 3, starring Oscar winner Mahershala Ali, premieres January 13th. Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke talked about the newest installments of the crime anthology, as well as Netflix's Sex Education. Hello, and welcome to the Critics' Corner section of Variety's TV podcast. I'm Caroline Framke. I am one of Variety's TV critics. And I'm Daniel D'Addario, uh, the other television critic here. And we are going to talk about a couple shows coming out this week that we have reviewed and seen and maybe you'll be interested in. The first one is one that's been highly anticipated for a while now. It's the third season of HBO's True Detective. And Dan, I know you reviewed and pretty much liked it. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you thought, especially in comparison to season two, which I know disappointed a lot of people. So we can talk a little bit briefly about season two, just to refresh the memories of those who've blocked it out. <laughs> uh, season two of True Detective was 
more of everything, more characters, more Baroque plot complications that never got resolved, more madness, and it was too much. And the nice thing about season three is that within reason, it's a stripped down take on the detective saga. The case is relatively simple and there's room for just enough putting in, you know, big hot button issues without it feeling overstuffed. And Mahershala Ali's performance is terrific, but part of what makes it terrific is that it's subtle and dialed down, which is a rarity for this franchise. Hmm. Yeah. So what do you, I was going to ask a little bit more about Mahershala. What is it about his performance that you think makes it a standout? He's obviously been more in the public eye recently, even though he's been working and proving himself as an actor for years. Yeah, absolutely. And part of what makes it a standout is it's, uh, there's another thing that, about it that's rare for this franchise, which is that he's a person of color. And I think the ways in which uh, his character's race play into the story in what has been a predominantly white franchise help make the story more interesting. Beyond that, though, his performance is something really special in the way that he's able to have the movements through time that this show does, jumping between three time periods, Mm. work effectively and without overdone Baroque emotionality. It's very subtle and simple, the way he makes clear to you the difference between, especially his first two incarnations, which are only separated by a decade. it's, It's little things. It's not massive makeup. It's not massive, you know, fake coughing or pretending to be <laughs> ill with age it's it's because those are things we think of as kind of key to the performance of matthew mcconaughey who similarly had a huge splashy role in the first season this is more tamped down work and it suits a season that is not big and flashy but that is absolutely worth a watch yeah i'll be interested to see how people like it especially we were talking about this earlier that this is five years after the first season of true detective which truly feels bonkers to me it's it's crazy that it ended up coming back after such a long time it feels more akin to shows in the british system that take long Mm. long hiatuses and part of that i think is that this franchise is really valuable to hbo but they and to his credit show creator nick pizzolatto i assume thought that the show needed pretty massive retooling and the time was used really well. Well, great. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah. And there's a show that I know you reviewed that I'm a little bit curious about as well, which is sex education, which I know about in the context of a new project for Gillian Anderson, who's one of everyone's favorite stars, but enlighten me a little bit more about what it's all about. Yeah, I think people will be interested to see Gillian Anderson in this because I was surprised. It's Sex Education is a British dramedy. It is an hour long, but it's mostly a comedy. And it describes itself as, quote, a British love letter to American high school comedies. Um, so it's basically, it's a teen sex comedy in which Gillian Anderson plays a sex therapist who is a single mother and her son is played by Asa Butterfield, who most people will know as the little boy in Hugo. So it'll be a little bit of a jarring disconnect for (laughs) fans of Asa Butterfield, which side note, incredible name. (laughs) But anyway, she plays, um, so she's a sex therapist and he obviously has some mixed feelings about that as he's now going through puberty, but through a series of comic misadventures, um, ends up giving sex therapy to his high school peers and figures out that he's really good at it. And so that's the setup, but it does, it ends up being more, it was more interesting than I 
initially was going to give it credit for. The sex therapy sessions are really compassionate and really specific in a way that I don't think a lot of high school comedies are. I think sex in these shows can be really sort of abstract and it comes down to whether you've had it or not. But for this show, it gets much more specific about different problems people are having and the difference between just knowing what sex is and learning how to enjoy it and what you like. So I think it's a, it's it's compassionate, it's progressive. That's something that's also interesting about it. He Otis, who's played by Asa Butterfield, his best friend is gay, played by a really great newcomer in Kuti Gatwa. And the nice thing about his storyline is that it's not a coming out storyline, which is really typical of these things. It's moved past that. He's already out and so he can have different stories and move past that. And so we don't see that that often. I really enjoyed it. I'm hesitant to even ask this because this show sounds so kind of of this moment, but is there anything, if you're trying to entice people to watch it, is there anything you'd compare it to? Yes. um, It definitely feels like it's doing a modern take on sort of 80s teen sex comedy movies more than other TV shows. I was surprised even in the first episode when someone pulled out an iPhone because it was it felt so rooted in the late 70s, early 80s, even just in the costumes. I know we're all sort of wearing 70s, 80s stuff now, but even the mean girls are wearing like Heather's Technicolor blazers and there's an earnest jock with his letterman's jacket and Otis is the shy virgin nerd. All the tropes are there, but they do more interesting stuff with it. Jillian Anderson's having an awesome time. And so I think people will come to appreciate it. Sounds terrific. I can't wait to watch. Until next week, I'm Dan Daddario. I'm Caroline Framke, and there's always more TV where that came from. The final season of Game of Thrones is coming this spring, but HBO's already at work on a pilot for a prequel series. We talked with a variety TV reporter, Joe Otterson, about how the spinoff is shaping up. Joe, what do we know about the new Game of Thrones prequel so far? Uh, So we know that it will take place thousands of years before the events of the uh, original series, and that beyond that, it's kind of hard to say. Um, We know it's going to uh, involve the Long Night to some degree and the creation of the White Walkers, but at this point, given the fact that HBO is being very, very secretive about this, rather, um, it's really anybody's guess what is happening beyond that. This is the moment, by the way, where if you don't know what the Long Night is or what White Walkers are you can just turn off the podcast (laughs) there's nothing here for you if you don't know at this point i mean are you really listening to this podcast (laughs) this is what we do um so who's going to be involved in this do we know anything yet about casting uh, creative direction yeah, so um, in terms of casting, uh, it was previously announced that Naomi Watts and Josh Whitehouse were going to star in the show, and it was just announced today they've added eight new series regulars, uh, and those are Naomi Aki, Denise Goff, Jamie Campbell-Bauer, Sheila Adam, Ivano Jeremiah, Georgie Henley, Alex Sharp, and Toby Regbo. Um not, not to call anybody out here, but I mean, the, the biggest of those names is probably Naomi Aki because she is going to be in the new Star Wars film that comes out at the end of this year, Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, but then also um, what I think is very interesting is that S.J. Clarkson is going to be directing the pilot. She's also directed episodes of shows like Orange is the New Black, uh, Banshee, uh, Dexter. Uh, she directed multiple episodes of The Defenders for Netflix and Jessica Jones. And I think um, it's really interesting that HBO is putting, you know, the future of the Game of Thrones franchise in the hands of a female director. I think that's a very uh, strong testament to the kind of director that S.J. Clarkson is. And when we're talking about things like Star Trek and Star Wars and now Game of Thrones, I mean, clearly they are bringing in people who have some experience with the sort of creme de la creme of 
geek stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, given the fact that, you know, uh, this is Game of Thrones, I mean, you have to imagine HBO is going to put a lot of time and money and resources behind this. So, I mean, you definitely need someone who knows how to manage all of those things to keep the trains running, if you will. How does this fit into HBO's programming plans for the coming years? Um, I think this is going to be a very big part of HBO's programming plans going forward here. I mean, uh, imagine how bad this pilot would have to be for them to pass on it. I mean, <laughs> game, game, well, no, I mean, seriously, I mean, Game of Thrones is not only the biggest show on HBO, it's pretty much the biggest show on TV right now. I mean, the fact that a premium cable show can draw upwards of, you know, I think close to 20 million viewers an episode it pulled and it's in season uh, seven, right? Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, that's incredible in this, and that's incredible anytime, but especially in this day and age, that's incredible. Uh, so I think definitely this is going to be a big part of that, but then obviously HBO has a lot of other big projects in the works right now. They're going to have their new Watchmen series launching in 2019. They've got the final season of Veep. They've got uh, the new season of Big Little Lies. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, HBO is not going to be hurting for programming by, by any means, but I mean, yeah, this is going to be a very big, uh, big swing for them. Now, let's not forget HBO reshot the original Game of Thrones pilot about a decade ago because they weren't happy with the creative direction, but obviously were still enthused about the product. Mm-hmm. And just imagine if they hadn't, you know, where would we be? Where today? would we be? We'd be you in know? a world without Game of Thrones. No, no one, no dragons, no Khaleesi's. I mean, it would be a much, much darker place. No one yeah. would know about, uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have Sophie Turner dancing at, uh, at uh, Priyanka Chopra's <laughs> wedding. <laughs> you and I probably wouldn't have jobs right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole industry would have imploded. <laughs> what do we know yet? What do we know about, uh, about the fi- upcoming final season of the Mothership series? Uh, again, very little. We know it's going to be six episodes, and I believe it was um, HBO uh, programming president Casey Blois has said that um, they're basically like six individual films. So, I mean, the the you know, I feel like this word gets thrown around, around a lot nowadays, but I mean, you, you have to use it in this con- in this context. Epic. I mean, that's I think the best way we can describe it based on the very limited information we have. Just expect them to pull out all the stops. I mean, the the biggest things we can possibly imagine is is what I'm picturing for this final season. Well, thank you, Joe. Winterfell is yours. (laughs) Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Kurt Minifee of Fox NFL Sunday. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.